welcome to the Full Capacity Living Podcast. I'm your host, Karen Bush. As a board-certified integrative and functional medicine health coach, I work with physicians and clients across the country to create healthy habits that stick. The mission of this podcast is to empower you, the listener, to take charge of your own health and to shift the healthcare paradigm one conversation at a time. Each episode digs deep into health and wellness informed through the lens of integrative and functional medicine. I talk to those in the trenches doing the work and sharing ideas. You will hear from cutting-edge leaders and everyday people making the world and our lives better each moment through nutrition, mindfulness, gut health, spirituality, movement, and so much more. Are you living up to your full capacity? Well, stay here, have a listen, and maybe expand your world a little bit. Now on to this week's show. For over 20 years, Dr. Stephen Post has been spreading the science of giving and the commitment to the greater good. He has promoted the idea of give and live better across the globe, funding over 50 scientific studies at the nation's top universities, as well as conducting his own research, Stephen is considered the go-to guy with his uplifting message that when we contribute to the lives of others, give meaningfully and live by the golden rule, we are generally happier, healthier, resilient, creative, hopeful, successful. With Sir John Templeton, Stephen Post co-founded the Institute for Research on Unlimited Love, Spirituality, Compassion, and Service in 2001. And Post is the best-selling lead author of Why Good Things Happen to Good People, How to Live a Longer, Happier, Healthier Life by the Simple Act of Giving. He has been quoted in more than 4,000 newspapers and magazines and featured on numerous television shows, including The Daily Show um, and described by Martin Seligman in Flourish as one of the stars of positive psychology. In this podcast, we talk about the work he is doing as the director and founder of the Center for Medical Humanities and Compassionate Care at Stony Brook University. He shares the unique perspective that is cultivated within the medical school, highlighting medical humanism, empathy, and compassion through providing curriculum to medical students that is truly compassionate care through the arts and humanity. We dive into his work with Alzheimer's patients, or as he likes to say, the deeply forgetful, the autistic population, the mystery and mystical aspect of cognitive changes and consciousness. We talk about what he also likes to call moral injury versus burnout with physicians. This conversation is full of gentle curiosity, attentive listening, finding the meaning in medicine again, and his philosophy of living from his book, Why Good Things Happen to Good People. It is chock full of names and books and studies that are all referenced in the show notes. So sit back and get ready for a beautiful conversation with a phenomenal and gracious leader in the world of compassion, empathy, and unlimited love. Well, welcome, Stephen Post. I'm really happy to have you here on Full Capacity Living Podcast. And our topic, yep. our topic today, medical humanities, compassionate care and bioethics, three linked aspects of healing, which is the work that you do now at Stony Brook and, and have 
since the beginning, right? I mean, tell me a little bit about where this all came from. And I know you've written a book on this, so so we could read the book, but tell me a little bit about how this became part of your life and why it's so important to you and, and how you got where you are now. Oh, those are big questions. I'll answer them as succinctly as I can. Uh, I came here to Stony Brook 12 years ago. Stony Brook is on the North shore of Long Island. It has a very fine medical school and medical center that at the time was struggling a little bit with morale and uh, um, patient care uh, was not entirely empathic by any means, isn't any place, but this was a particularly down period. Mm. So the president of the university called me when I was actually at uh, Case Western Medical School and asked if I would like to come here and develop a program that wouldn't just be about bioethics, which is what we had at Case, uh, quandaries. Uh, do you use a feeding pig in a 90-year-old person with uh, terminal dementia? Or what do you do with a 22-week-old preemie? Those are quandaries, questions that mm -hmm. you can debate. But um, that's only a very small part of what we ought to be doing. So we spend a lot of time with the medical humanities uh, um, familiarizing students and faculty with illness narratives, with what people experience when they fall ill to different kinds of diseases. Uh, and we can do that through poetry, through short stories, through art and observation, even through music. Uh, we do lots of work uh, based on the expressions that individuals who are ill give to their experiences subjectively and that we think um, is able to elicit in students and also attendings caregivers uh, physicians full-fledged the empathic virtues uh, such as humility and empathy and compassion and attentive listening and so forth um, in other words they find meaning in what they're doing because they're connecting with a patient's narrative and not just their biology. Ah. And then third, thirdly, the, the bioethics piece follows uh, sequentially from that because uh, we do a fair amount of uh, clinical ethics consultation with patients and families and professionals that never goes well unless those uh, preliminary blocks are in place uh, mm -hmm. so that the interactions can be uh, empathic and constructive and not in the end counterproductive. So we see the three as very much linked. Um, empathy and compassion uh, are the, the core virtues that emanate from medical humanism and that benefit patients and also create a climate on the healthcare team, which uh, is similarly uh, um, imbued. Mm -hmm. Wow, that, that touches so many different areas of things I've experienced in just my work in healthcare, because, um, you know, in this podcast, I, 
my my work is is around health coaching and but my work used to be as a medical speech pathologist doing exactly the things that you're talking about feeding tubes with people who are um, at that end stage of life and and if you don't connect with who they are and and what that person might have wanted and and what the family knows about that person and and more than just as you said a case to be discussed in in ethics and bioethics um, the the conversation becomes so much different and i love what you're doing in terms of thinking about poetry and short stories and really connecting to people on a personal level um, versus a diagnosis and a person that's maybe in a bed right so well, art art is equally important as literature yeah. You know, we do courses on art and observation and the students go into the museums and they um, they observe artistic renditions of ill individuals, many of them are sort of classic renditions. Yeah, I'm sure there are a lot of them at the Cleveland Museum of Art. Um, mm -hmm. But that's important because it gets the students trained uh, mentally to focus on close observation and discuss close observation without any uh, computer printouts, without uh, any uh, algorithms floating around, but just very inductively and very closely paying attention to what they see. And there are several pretty good studies that, that students who um, engage in this kind of practice actually become better diagnosticians they uh, have fewer uh, episodes of pre what's called premature diagnostic closure where they just sort of look at a patient but don't really look at a patient and decide well this patient's like that patient or that patient and then they throw down a diagnosis which turns out to be wrong 70 percent of medical errors are the result of premature diagnosis and that means that there's a lot of pain that goes on because of this. So we like to have our students look very carefully at these images. Uh, they can read poetries, they can they can read short stories, you know, from Chekhov to whomever. But in the end, I think probably the most powerful venue is, is art and artistic renditions, um, because that really makes them think differently, makes their uh, their brain act differently. And so when they come into the clinical setting, they really pay closer attention to the details in front of them uh, and don't just think in terms of how this fits into everything else they've learned. What an amazing concept. I mean, where did this come from? Where, where did the idea that, that looking at art and being an observer of something that is such detail-oriented type, type work bringing that into the medical situation. It, I mean, and then there's also the question of the amount of time that people can spend because that's the logistics of our healthcare system. But where did that first seed of thinking that this is so important and knowing that this could be a connection, where did that come from? Well, not from us. Uh, and uh, it's hard to say exactly where, but I think that, um, there are probably 60 to 70 medical schools across the country, so roughly half of them, who have art and observation 
elective courses that are available. Mm -hmm. uh, the University of Pennsylvania has had students going up to the Philadelphia Academy of Art for a long time. Mm -hmm. um, we've also had it in, in Boston and uh, Mount Sinai in New York, which is our sister school, uh, <clears throat> has a great uh, art historian on the faculty, Bobby Collar, and she's been offering the course it's been very popular uh, bringing students to the um, to the Museum of Modern Art and, and, and the Metropolitan and really uh, digging into uh, these uh, depictions. By the way, some of the really interesting ones are uh, self-portraits mm. as artists, you know, whether it's you know Gauguin or, or Rembrandt um, attempt to capture uh, their own uh, gradual evolution under the conditions of illness. So we ask them to really look at these things, and 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 it's it's very effective. They like it. They do it at the Peabody Art Museum at Yale, uh, and and one of my closest colleagues, uh, Vince De Luis, is an ophthalmologist at Yale, uh, and also an art historian. So he handles that. And they, if you go to the Peabody, you'll see uh, on any given day a few dozen medical students. Um, sitting on the floor, sketching a particular image, and then they'll be talking about it over coffee. Um, and all of this uh, has gotten quite popular. Uh, we have poets here too. Jack Coulihan is on our faculty. This is the poet laureate of American medicine. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, and uh, his work constantly appears in the New England Journal and Annals of Internal Medicine and the like. Um, he's kind of taken over from John Stone, who had been at Emory and was at that time the Poet Laureate. Uh, John Stone actually came to Cleveland. He was a, he was a great friend uh, of the Cleveland Clinic. Um, but, uh, but yeah, so art is, 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 is very important as well as uh, poetics. And then again, even music, because there are lots of individuals who have as composition pieces, try to capture uh, the experience of their illness or the illness of a loved one. So we we can use that as well. But it's mainly it's mainly art and 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 poet poetry. And so, how does that connection um, sort of reach patients as well? Um, you know, from the other aspect, the other side of it, reaching patients through art and music and and culture and some of those things when they're experiencing some of the, the deep um, healing that needs to go on with some of the significant uh, illnesses that people experience. Yeah, well, we do a lot here um, in the cancer program, in the neurology programs with uh, art therapy. Uh, we like to have patients expressing themselves uh, through through the arts. Uh, down the road here, about 20 minutes away, there's a wonderful guy named Dan Cohen with whom uh, I work a lot. He founded a, a movement called Music and Memory. It has a great website, musicandmemory.org. Ah, right. And uh, this is the one, he's the one who actually won the documentary prize at Sundance for the great documentary uh, alive inside, oh. which a lot of people have, have been familiarized with. But uh, 
now um, across all of Canada, when people are diagnosed with probable Alzheimer's or uh, um, Parkinson's for that matter and other forms of dementia, they typically get uh, an eye uh, pod and they are able to listen uh, to personalized music, which brings them back into uh, their own self-identity. It's quite mm -hmm. remarkable to see it. Uh, at oh, least for a while, they get more connected with who they are and who they continue to be. Uh, so uh, I believe that their self-identity is always there underneath the surface. It's just that we don't uh, necessarily recognize it, notice it. And also we cover it up with negative metaphors like gone, husk, shell, empty, dead, etc. <clears throat> so music um, and art are very important. I was one of the co-founders of the Alzheimer's Association art program about 25 years ago. And I remember sitting in uh, a, a, a studio for uh, dementia patients in Kansas City, Missouri. Um, there was a guy there who kept day after day drawing the same images on white paper with a pencil. And uh, was pretty much chaotic, but there was one similar piece in each of these uh, efforts of his. It was a line, uh, like a road through the middle of the page. And I would ask him, so what's that mean? And he could never respond. It just wasn't possible for him. Mm -hmm. But then one day, surprisingly, he said, yeah, this is a, a map for my daughter to find my house. Uh... <clears throat> and, and so, so he was trying to, to capture something that we were not aware of, but it was symbolically consistent. So yeah, I, I, you know, we do that a lot. And, and you know, we do it with music, we do it with art. We want, we want people to be able to express themselves and we want um, students to be curious, to have a gentle curiosity about what these individuals are trying to convey. Well, and particularly for me, this this speaks to such a, a deep um, passion that I had for many years as a speech pathologist with people, you know, primarily a lot of people with head injuries or Alzheimer's or Parkinson's. Um, that was my world for a very long time, and and I would always um, try to help people understand that that even though that person can't express themselves in the typical ways that we think right. it are of expression we still need to talk to them and interact with them as though they do because they understand it on a different level. Absolutely. It's understood in nonverbal ways. It's understood in, in art and music and all of those things. So connecting in that way and teaching that to physicians and potential physicians and people who are gonna interact yes. with them. So, so yes. key and important. Oh, I can't even imagine. Yes, so my next book, which is coming out with Johns Hopkins probably in three to four months. I haven't yeah. quite seen the page groups yet, but it is called Dignity for Deeply Forgetful People, How Caregivers Can Meet the Challenges of Alzheimer's Disease. And it begins with many episodes that Dr. Joseph Michael Foley, a great neurologist at Case Western and University Hospitals, now deceased, but who was my mentor, Mm -hmm. that he and I collected of people with uh, Alzheimer's and other dementias who sporadically, surprisingly, um, 
showed remarkable coherency. There actually now are about a dozen excellent studies in the literature on what is called, you'll like this, um, paradoxical lucidity. In other words, where is this lucidity coming from? Uh, and, and the majority of caregivers will give testimony to their experiences of it. So why is it that an individual, even in the last few days of end-stage Alzheimer's, mm -hmm. will suddenly have these moments of lucidity? Where is that coming from? Mm -hmm. uh, people are debating neurological models, but it also is tempting to think that maybe there's something more mysterious about consciousness than matter. Mm. Um, that there is an underlying self-identity there uh, that uh, we just don't fully understand, but it is not, in fact, e eliminated or eradicated by uh, damage to the brain. Mm -hmm. So Joe, uh, who actually hired me, Case Med, in 1988, after a conversation in the foyer of Hannah Pavilion, which I think has now been torn down, uh, after a discussion about <clears throat> um, how we should conceptualize people with dementia. So I, over time, you know, came up with the idea that I don't even like the word dementia because it's somewhat demeaning and mm. is often used in a derogatory sense, even in politics, even. <laughs> so, uh, <clears throat> so I use the term deeply forgetful because it suggests that um, there's a kind of mystery to all this, a kind of mystical element to personality and self-identity. And we can't just uh, presume arrogantly that there's nothing there, when in fact, uh, there may be plenty there. We just don't understand it. Or maybe that individual has uh, gone to a whole different level of experience uh, that frees them from the constraints of temporal glue and time and place. And it's a much more mystical kind of place. That's such a beautiful way of thinking about that because that isn't, you're right, that isn't the way that we think about um, people who have dementia. And I'm, you know, in functional and integrative medicine, I'm sort of on the other side of that, which is, is how do we help people live their longest, healthiest lives without potentially getting to that point, right? But we, but, but it's an epidemic. We know that it, it's there, right? So we, we have to deal with it in a way that's compassionate and, and really thinking about that person, um, not as someone, as you said, who's in, in a, um, a shell or lost or gone because they're not, they're in a different dimension than us. But, you know, thinking Absolutely. about, there, there's a, a physician that I worked with at the Cleveland Clinic, um, Dr. Nate Bergman, who does a lot of work with Alzheimer's um, patients um, with the Bredesen Protocol. And I don't know if that's anything that you're familiar with, but it's, it's really looking at all the aspects of um, nutrition and sleep and you know all of the things yeah. that we know make for a healthy, healthy life, but also a sense of spirituality and a sense of... Um, you know, having otherworldly connections, right? Which I think is is part of what you're talking about. You get to that point with with someone who has that, but how do, how can we back that up a little bit and bring that to people who um, may not get to that point, but 
are, you know, as you're talking about, you're working with, with physicians and, and training them to have this empathy and compassion um, and backing it up a little bit to get people where they're not in that space. We, we want to lower the number of people there, right? Yeah. Well, you know, um, on the whole, you know, there's a tension between, you know, I think of dementia as a disability, disability activism and bioethics, and even the medical model, which is about functionality. Yeah. But if you put aside what I've written about widely, hypercognitive values, mm. that we value people because they are cognitively gifted and talented and quick, uh, but we disvalue them otherwise. We de-dignify them, we humiliate them, and so forth. And so in my view, um, that's the term, uh, that's where the term deeply forgetful really comes in. It's much more open about the experience. Mm -hmm. And this also carries forward to autism. We had the we actually published the Stony Brook guidelines for ethics and the care of people with autism mm -hmm. uh, about seven or eight years ago. It's really taken off. But the first, and it was actually a community dialogue with family members and individuals. And the first thing they wanted to talk about was happiness, interestingly enough. Hmm. And they their point was that, you know, as parents, they're constantly concerned about how they can mainstream their kids because their kids have to live a life, have to get along, have to be functional in society to the extent possible. Mm -hmm. um, but, but also um, they can take that too far because when someone is in uh, a deep sort of autistic moment, uh, if you will, uh, uh, stemming and so forth, um, they may not be at all unhappy. They may be perfectly happy. In fact, Mikhail Chick sent me high with whom I worked at the University of Chicago who wrote the yeah. book Flow, when he was doing flow right. and doing ecological momentary assessment. Uh, 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 he suggested at times that autism is actually an exaggeration of flow. So when people get into flow states, uh, when they're writing, uh, when they're listening deeply to music, auto self, autonomos, they're really kind of disconnected from the world around them. They don't want to be disturbed. Mm -hmm. They're in their own zone. Yeah. And people with autism um, are like that. It's not just that it's a negative experience for them emotionally. There must be something advantageous evolutionarily for that condition to exist, even though it's an exaggeration and even an anomaly. But um, in my view, people with um, uh, uh, autism can oftentimes uh, have a state of internal well-being. Of course, they'll be uh, agitated at times and you have to interact with them carefully, but, but I don't dismiss their their inward condition. I recognize, you know, hopefully you can work with them and help them to interact better with the world. But, you know, um, it also has to be said that we don't want to uh, evaluate them or judge their experience more negatively 
than it necessarily has to be. Well, it's and that's, by the way, yeah, that's evolutionarily, uh, that, that's the whole movement of evolutionary psychiatry. So every, every, uh, every condition, be it, be it uh, autism or be it uh, even depression, is an exaggeration of an otherwise functional condition. So, you know, depression is sadness for no reason. Sadness is necessary and important. We have to grieve. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Being sad is okay. But if, you, if you're sad for no reason and you're constantly sad and you can't get out of it, then it's depression. Right. And so uh, you just need to think about these these conditions um, a little more creatively. Well, it's sort of what you just, you started out this conversation talking about hypercognitive values, right? It's a value system on what we look at as valuable and, and quote unquote normal as well. Um, and thinking about that, you know, Mihai Chick sent Mihai, how many of us want to be in flow more often so that we can focus and really be part of, of something that we're working on. Uh, you know, flow doesn't happen that often for people, but it's a, it's a state that, that you can really be um, efficient and connected to what it is that you're trying to do. So, so it's a positive Absolutely. thing, right? <laughs> yeah, Marty Seligman in his, in his writing on happiness, uh, you know, having helped introduce Marty to Sir John Templeton at the founding of positive psychology. Oh. Yeah. in Philadelphia, but uh, and and been at the initial summer workshop in 2000 with Chick Sent Me High and George Valiant and Enright and all these people. Um, you know, uh, absolutely. Uh, um, these, I mean, the problem with the world we live in right now is that it's so fragmented and our minds were not evolved for just these little bits of information that come flashing at us through screens through blue screens yeah and 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 in fact it's very exhausting after a long day's work i have about 200 emails a day that have to be responded to i i am very good at two or three word responses <laughs> but i could spend my whole life responding to email and the computer is a machine i'm not mm -hmm. so that's exhausting but if i go out to the poconos and spend three days, 24 seven, working on an article that I'm really immersed in, I'm rejuvenated yeah. and I can come back over to George Washington Bridge and I feel good. Yeah. So so yeah. our minds weren't, weren't designed to work like we're forcing them to work now. Uh, they're designed to be in a more of a flow type state. And, you know, um, uh, there's really something to, to think uh, about here uh, in terms of modern life and, and, and you know, why, even though someone in a, in, who's autistic is not productive necessarily, although some of them can hold jobs and they can be very productive, but the, the, the ones that function with more difficulty are not economically productive. They're not, high, they're not cognitively uh, 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 generative either, but but they're special kinds of people. So our students have, for the last six years, a dance program with the autistic teens and young adults from greater Suffolk County on Long Island. And they do this every two or three weeks in the 
in the gymnasium, uh, the medical students and the autistic kids do modern dance. We even had the Tyler Dance Group come in from Brooklyn to do this nice. and uh, with them. And, and it creates such a, uh, an affirmation for the artistic folks, but it's also great for our students because suddenly they begin to be really excellent at communicating because obviously, you know, over the course of two hours of dancing, they're going to, the parents were around too, but there are going to be moments of, uh, shall we say, de you know, decompensation. So the students really learned to do that. And one of our students, uh, Jadri Gruen, who started doing this at Davidson College uh, before she came here, and that was about seven or eight years ago, even nine years ago, she's, a, she's doing her residency at Yale in internal medicine, and she's actually uh, developing their program uh, for autistic patients and she's drawing on a lot of the things that she's learned communicatively through dancing with them. Wow. So that's how you can use the arts and music and uh, poetry and all kinds of uh, venues to, to make the connections between medical students and patients. And, and I will say that Stony Brook has a higher per capita percentage of students who go into residencies and are, are invited uh, uh, when there to become chief residents. And I think it's because we emphasize this as part of their, their persona. And we were awarded from uh, Alpha Omega Alpha, which is the major uh, medical association. Uh, last year, we were given the annual national award for professional identity formation, partly because the place is just littered with all these kinds of, of interventions. Yeah, yeah. I think that's that's such a needed piece of our healthcare um, mission in this in this country, right? That that we need to connect with that sense of compassion and and looking at people from a different perspective. What I what I'd love to ask too, with all of these approaches and with with the idea that that a lot of your students are, are being asked to work in hospitals all over the country as residents um, and chief residents, and they bring all of this to those, those hospitals. How, how does that fit with the culture of healthcare and hospitals in terms of productivity and needing to see certain number of patients in a day and the time factor that you know, is included in that, right? I mean, doctors have little time. I know I worked in hospitals for many years. It, they don't have a lot of time to spend with patients. And so how, how do you balance that idea of bringing in all of this, this really amazing work that, that needs to be part of it with the, the pull and the, the compassion burnout that sometimes happens in hospitals? Yeah, well, those are all big, Big issues, of course, um, but there are things to be done. Um, we found in primary care, for example, that it's very easy for the larger healthcare system to allow family practitioners, pediatricians, and others to have more control over the scheduling through the course of the day. So there are a lot of patients who just want to get in and out of the doctor's office in two seconds flat, if possible, because they're going to Utica, who knows? You know? <laughs> wherever. Uh, yeah, wherever, Columbus. 
<clears throat> they want in and they want out. They don't want any of this silly stuff. So schedule them in the morning. And that really works great. You can schedule two or three times <laughs> normal numbers of patients because they just really want to get it's the shot in the arm. They want to get whatever it is. And it's not very demanding. Um, and they want to move along. So they're, they're fine with that. But then in the afternoon, say after two o'clock, that's where you make room and time for the patients who you know want room and time. Mm -hmm. And that works very well. So that allows the doctors to have even a half an hour, which is plenty of time in most cases, with or 20 minutes at least, anyway, half an hour, uh, sometimes more with uh, the, the patients who really need it and want it. And, 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 and this is very effective. So it's satisfying for the, for the doctors and they feel that um, they're not providing substandard care. They're not just um, cogs in the wheel that they have some autonomy and some control. Right. That makes a big difference and that should be done everywhere. But most of these systems don't allow the clinicians to have any control over the management of their schedules. Big mistake. Right. Right. The other thing, the other thing, well, there are so many things. The other thing is that we, um, there, you know, there is the problem of um, moral injury, which I actually prefer to burnout. I, I have just written a paper in the American Journal of Medical Sciences with, with uh, Sal Mangione of Jefferson about this. I mean, the burnout word basically suggests that, well, okay, that's your fault because you're burned out. You're not taking care of yourself. Mm. You know? you can't. It's actually the institution's fault. Sure. It's the institution's fault. So the moral injury, which is the word that comes from the military, basically means that you know, you're moral injured if you're asked to do something that you think is inconsistent with your professional identity and your moral ideals. Hmm. So what's happening is that people are being bifurcated. They're having to put aside all the meaning and all the integrity of their work just to kind of go through the motions and get routinized. And then they lose meaning. And, and as you know, that loss of meaning is the beginning of so-called burnout. Right. But it's not that they aren't, uh, you know, uh, um, doing the things they need to do to even take care of themselves. A lot of them are, but they're just in a situation where they're having to provide care that is inconsistent with their inner vision. Mm -hmm. And so we need to recognize that that that's the core point. And and when we allow, so what we do is we have reflection rounds in every clerkship. We're the only medical school in the country that does this. Every single clerkship and in every single residency, we have reflection rounds, which were originally funded through the John Templeton Foundation when I was on the board of trustees about 15 years ago. But reflection, so, so our clerkship students, they come out of the medicine clerkship, for example, and they'll spend an hour and 15 minutes, maybe just three or four of them in a small group, you know, maybe seven or eight, and they're on notice that they have to talk about something on the human side of their experience, something that made them happy to come in the next day, something that was very difficult for them, that they worried about at night, that maybe they lost sleep over or were dyspeptic about. It could be a case, it could be someone's behavior, it could be 
anything going on, but not of a clinical skill set sort of nature, but something about their human inner experience. And so they come in and they talk about that with each other. And we have a model, which I borrowed from Parker Palmer, called circles of trust. Mm -hmm. Don't react, uh, you know, respond. A good question is better than a flippant answer. Be empathic and so forth. And they learn to communicate as a team over these things that they've been bothered by. So there was one kid who said, you know, I was with my, I was with my group in, uh, in, in the clinic and uh, one of the attendings actually made a derisive joke about a patient within earshot and people started to laugh. And I said to myself, well, should I laugh? And I decided not to. And then I even asked myself, should I smile? I mm. didn't even want to smile. And then the nurse came up to me a little later and she said, I saw how you handled yourself. That was really great. Why don't you think diplomatically about approaching the team and talking to them about what you were experiencing? So they did that. Uh, he did that and he did it very effectively. Mm -hmm. And that kind of uh, empowerment of integrity and identity formation has really taken off here. And so this is the most popular part of the clinical curriculum for our medical students. And um, uh, we've actually published a paper showing that it completely eradicates what people call these, the hidden curriculum that somehow pay, students have to get cynical in these clerkship years. They don't. If you just give them a small group, a circle of trust to talk about these inner dimensions and not just leave it in the parking lot mm -hmm. or wake up their significant other at midnight. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> which my wife does. She, my wife teaches first grade. It's very typical that about midnight I'll get woken up hey little Johnny I oh my yeah like I really need that you know <laughs> but to bring it into bring it into the clinical set, setting bring it into the clerkship setting bring it into the residency we do these are favorite activities in uh, OB residency in pediatrics in medicine in all of them because the the, the resident now there are no clerkship directors, there are no residency directors allowed in the room. So my what well, part of my job here is to yeah. pick out, you know, have on on call 15 or 20 reasonably psychologically skilled people. They could be clinical social workers, could be a lot of things. Uh, just, you know, senior clinicians who, who really get this, but just to allow people an opportunity to affirm who they are. It's not that they're going to change the system or have a perfect system. Uh, the world's been burning since the world's been turning, you know? Yeah. Billy Joel, his park <laughs> is down the street, Cold Spring Harbor. But, um, you know, uh, but but at least they, they learn how to manage it and handle it, form community around it. And when, um, when the LCME came here two years ago, three years ago, to evaluate our medical school, which they do with all medical schools about every 10 years, mm -hmm. They, they, they interviewed all the students and all the faculty about the, the, the strengths of the institution. And the number one strength was compassionate community. Ah. So, and when you allow people to form community and you respect their internal experience, like that kid who was really losing sleep about derisive humor. I mean, he didn't come to medical school to hear wise cracks made about a patient within earshot, you know? Exactly. Uh, I mean, I could give you that, but, but just to give him an opportunity to affirm who he is and what he is and why he's here is so empowering and so strengthening. And it, it, it actually forms community. Schwartz rounds do the same thing. I'm a Schwartz rounds 
I think we were like the second place in America to have Schwartz rounds. And I went up there and worked with them for quite a while. And, what are Schwartz and rounds? We have that. Schwartz rounds are uh, rounds that we, you know, ha happen a lot now. They're not medical mistake M&M type rounds, but they're rounds where, you know, a couple of, you know, clinician, usually a nurse, a clinical social worker, maybe somebody else, you know, will just spend five minutes each, no more, talking about a difficult case that they were involved in as a team. Maybe, um, you know, maybe it was, uh, um, I mean, to give one, one example, uh, uh, a kid who was 17 and he had Hodgkin's lymphoma, he clearly could have been helped with treatment, but he didn't want any. And his parents supported his descent. He went down to Florida and um, came back a month later. Uh, they had spent $100,000 on garbledygook and um, um, it was too late to treat him. So he died, and the day, the few days after he died, we had a Schwartz rounds on the case. Wow! And, um, it was deeply emotional because you know this, this one very senior clinician said she has never not gone to the funeral of a teenage patient who died of cancer mm -hmm. under her watch, but she wouldn't do do this because she couldn't bear to be there with the parents. But then by expressing that and saying, you know, this is really difficult for me, and and then having other people, you know, the nurse said. You know, I feel so guilty because I was the one who really put my my foot forward and said, "This kid, he has his autonomy. He's almost eighteen, after all." You know, uh, and yeah. and so it was very deep, but it went but through a lot. And then so you just let let a few people talk about this, and then we opened it up to the room of about you know sixty or seventy clinicians and residents and so forth, and they talk about their feelings about the case and similar experiences they've had. And it's just a community dialogue of great beauty. Yeah. And what what by allowing people to process this, then you're allowing you're you're caring for them as human beings. You're saying to them, you know, we. That's what the residency clerkship rounds, you know, the reflection rounds, the clerkship reflection rounds, the shorts rounds. It's all about creating overlapping circles, where individuals get the message that we actually give a damn about their feelings, about their struggles, about what they are experiencing as human beings in all of this complexity. And, and empathy, know. yeah. The reflection rounds, I think, um, as well as the Schwartz rounds sound um, like something, you know, every, every medical school should be doing and every hospital system should be doing. How, how is this, disseminated i know you said you wrote a paper about it and the outcomes that you found and um how is this getting sort of you know disseminated into other medical schools or other hospitals where they could use this as as a way of diffusing some of that intensity that happens around um, patient care well the schwartz center is, which is located at boston children's uh is a big is a big enterprise and, and Schwartz rounds uh, at this point in time uh, are ongoing in something like seven or 800 uh, hospitals and healthcare systems around the country. Mm -hmm. So they're having some, some impact and a lot of people really, uh, really speak highly of them. They're, they're, they're uh, found in the UK, uh, they're found in Canada. Uh, so this is really uh, something that's coming of of age, 
the reflection rounds, you know, um, it really takes um, people who want to build community to make it happen. So that's that's why, you know, I'm, I don't like quandary bioethicists terribly much. I mean, I respect them, I, I, I interact with them, but, and you need them, I guess, you know, because they're interested in policy and, you know, what should we do about this or that and the other thing. But, but a lot of times they're just involved, frankly, in philosophical debates with other quandary bioethicists. And they have nothing really to do much with the lifeblood of a community. Mm-hmm. So um, the reason why we have the program we have is because we're really interested in community building. Yes. And when I hire people, I will not hire anybody who is just an academically productive individual. If they're just that, then we don't have use for them because you have to be you have to be a good scholar. You have to be able to do significant academic work, but you have to want to be a community builder. Yeah. You have to have psychological skill sets, uh, and and you have to you have to make that part of your life and the life of the people around you. So that's my sense of of where bioethics kind of went wrong and, and a lot of people came into it from analytic philosophy I say this honestly you know sure. which is to say you know they're great uh, with uh, linguistic uh, uh, argument and and forms of, of uh, argumentation that follow from a certain tradition but in terms of actually being uh, able to build a community of compassion um, they kind of strike out well, this, this sort of reminds me a little bit of, of, you know, maybe this is a good segue into kind of talking about your philosophy of everyday life from, from your book, Why Good People Do Good Things, right? It, you're looking why good things happen to good people. Why good things happen to good people. And so talking about the people that you hire, right? Like you want that that loyalty, that that forgiveness, that um, respect, the attentive listening—a lot of those those philosophies that you speak of in that book, which which speak to you know what what the average person wants in their life and what what leads to a life of flourishing, almost like what you're talking about with Marty Seligman, which I know is is you you two are um, you know on the same page about that. Is so tell me a little bit about how that book came about. That was not your your most recent. It was right. Two thousand and seven. Yeah. Well, so you know, I had uh, um, I had run into Sir John Templeton, the billionaire investor of the Templeton funds, and had known him really since about nineteen ninety. Uh, I was actually sitting in my office at Case Western, and I and I got a I got a fax from Sir John who was down in in. Nassau in the Bahamas. And um, he'd read an article I'd written in the American Journal of Psychiatry, basically deconstructing, at that time, DSM-3R, the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual, some of your listeners will know about, but it's a nosology, it's a list of forms of mental illness. Right. But deconstructing it from the point of view of how it deals with religion and spirituality. And he liked that. And and then uh, 
Peter Steinfels had written an article about my article in the New York Times, and it had gotten to the Columbia University people who were editing DSM-3R into DSM-4, and they made a lot of really cool revisions, which were much more respectful of this kind of ideation and experience. Uh, and so Sir John and I uh, became friends, and um, I worked with him on the um, Institute for Healthcare Research, which funded all the studies on spirituality and health in the 90s with David Larson. Uh, we, we gave jobs to people like Harold Koenig and just all the, the, the creme de la creme of that whole field. And it's incredibly ongoing now. Uh, Greg Frischone, who runs the Benson Henry Institute at Harvard, Mind Body Institute, mm -hmm. it's a whole list mm -hmm. of people. Yeah. Esther Sternberg, you name it. And so Dave and I, I, I was the uh, chairman of his board and we did lots of great things with Sir John's support. But then Sir John wanted to spread out a little bit further. So we started working on gratitude and we, we developed the gratitude uh, center uh, with Bob Emmons uh, at UC Davis, the Forgiveness Center with Ev Worthington at Virginia Commonwealth Institution, and it goes on and on and on, including at Case Western, the Institute for Research on Unlimited Love. Yeah. Um, and and uh, which was yours, uh, right? Of yeah, at at it, but not of Case Western, mm -hmm. and that's a long story. But we funded, uh, you know, roughly 70 studies all around the country on things like empathy and compassion and the spiritual experience of a, of a love that's maybe higher than our own. Uh, so it was very open about that. Uh, actually, Sir John had faxed me from Lyford and he said, we need to study the greatest asset, which is, which is love. And not just human love, but the love that made humans, because he believed in that kind of spiritual energy. Wow! And so I, you studied that. I said, so, <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah. So actually, uh, you you know, um, you you can because you can you can study people's experiences of it, where they talk about having been almost invaded by a kind of energy that they didn't think came from them, but somehow came from outside of them, or paradoxically from them. But yeah, so we actually did a book with Oxford um, uh, uh, that that was based on a survey of um, Americans, uh, about 1,200 Americans, adults, asking them if they've had these kinds of experiences and to describe them. And a lot of them, actually, uh, well more than half of them have, and there's a certain percentage, about 12%, who feel that they have these experiences all the time. Ah. And uh, so we talked about how it affects their lives. And, and, and that actually, that book um, came out with Oxford and the guy I co-authored it with, Matt Lee, was at the University of Akron in sociology. Really? I put an advertisement really? out in the, in the Chronicle of Higher Education for social scientists who wanted to study these higher forms of love. Uh, human and spiritual, interhuman, interpersonal, and spiritual experiences of love. And Matt had applied, and I gave him a five thousand dollar award. He started teaching a course at Akron, which started making its way onto the front page of the Akron Beacon Journal. Mm -hmm. And 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 Matt became the most successful scholar in this field. And then four years ago, I wrote him a seven page letter to Harvard, 
uh, to Harold Vanderpool of the Chan School of Public Health. And he is now, Matt is now the director of empirical research on human flourishing, giving and spirituality across Harvard University. And his course is the most popular course among undergraduates. And he just has a book coming out right now on flourishing. He's, he's the best of the best. And he, so wow. he's in his family in Cambridge. But I have, a, I, have, I have like three or four dozen people like Matt, who, you know, initially this was kind of crazy. And honestly speaking, the people at Case Western I worked with in bioethics, and I respect them for this. This was too over the top for them. I mean, come yeah. on. Yeah. You know, one of our faculty members who's known for stuff on Alzheimer's and dementia and yada yada, suddenly doing things on unlimited love. I mean, my heart goes out, to, you know, I mean, the, you know, the poor people there, Stuart Younger included. I actually like Stuart Younger, the psychiatrist who's the chair of the department. But look, this was a challenge for anybody of sane mind who's, 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 who's worried about their reputation. But I'm obviously not. Nothing embarrasses me. My wife says that too. She says nothing yeah. ever embarrasses you. It never does. Well, I don't believe it. But, Thankfully, it doesn't, because this is important work to be done and to find out really how it affects people. And, and what I'm interested in, because we talk a lot about this in, in functional medicine in terms of the holistic way of looking at health. It's not just about nutrition and exercise and sleep. It's about that sense of spirituality and that, that connection to people and how that actually affects you physiologically, right? Does that lower your cortisol levels? Does it bring down inflammatory markers? That is where I think the, the sort of connection between what you're doing and what what functional medicine or integrative medicine is doing really sort of speaks to that quantitative. You kind of have to have a little bit of that, right? You, you always want yeah, to have yeah. some way of quantifying it, but, but tell me a little bit about how that impacts and, and how you know that that brings down some of those markers that can lead to chronic disease or lowered immune system and the things that we know are affected by that. Yeah, well, biomarkers are usually the holy grail, you know? Right, uh, but but uh, you know they're useful uh, uh, certainly. Um, I, I, you know the whole thing of protracted stress. You know when stress is not very uh, compacted and sporadic and in response to an identifiable threat, sure. i.e., the fight flight response, where it's healthy because you've got to get away, and so you're mm -hmm. pumping all this adrenaline into your system. It's great, but if you're just under constant stress, you know, for years and years, you know, clearly it, you know, as, as Hans Selye's pointed out in the 1930s when he wrote the first article on stress in the journal mm -hmm. Nature, um, you know, he, 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 he had, he had, he, he was a postdoc psychiatrist and he had gone up to the University of uh, Montreal and their neurological institute and he needed to find a study and he couldn't figure out a good idea to work on. So he noticed something. He hated rats and he was throwing his rats back into the cage and they were dying after a few months. They were failing to thrive. And uh, a gal across the hallway loved rats. She was like, you know, caressing them and her rats were doing fine. And so he had an experiment and he found out that his rats had adrenal glands sitting on their kidneys that were twice the size of a normal adrenal gland. And they were mainly dying of vascular disease. And so they were having, if you will, heart failure and, and vascular flow issues and, and, um, 
and 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 so it turns out that the uh, and this is well accepted that that the protracted stress of uh, 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 stress and the high levels of stress hormones convert metabolites into fatty acids. But we now know more. For example, getting back to Alzheimer's disease, uh, there's an infinite amount of literature in the last 10 years about how along with certain genetic susceptibility uh, situations and, and age itself and other such things, stress alone is one of the six pathways contributing to the onset of hippocampal atrophy, which is the major marker of Alzheimer's disease. We also know that, that it's, this slows wound healing. So when people are under protracted stress, their wounds will heal at about 15 to 20% a slower rate than someone who is not stressed. And so this is why um, relationships really matter in the clinical setting and in life in general. And it's also why environment matters. So Esther Sternberg, I call her Queen Esther, who mm -hmm. ran the Division of Psychoneuroimmunology at the NIH for many, many years and is now at the University of Arizona School of Medicine running the Mind Body Institute. Uh, she wrote a book called Healing Places. Actually, hold it, Healing Spaces. Yeah. And it's about how architecture really matters. You know, she starts out saying she'd been diagnosed with autoimmune disease, she was doing very badly. No one could help her, so she went to Greece, lived in a little cottage, uh, looked over the Aegean, walked up the hills, uh, shifted to the Mediterranean diet and so forth. And then she started to get better. So she came back and she realized that although she was really the, the main figure in, on, in, in terms of the science of stress and, and hormones and, and, and negative relationships, destructive emotions, hostility, bitterness, anger, rage, and the like, she realized that a lot of this had to do with um, environment. So for the last 10 years, so seven years, she's been giving plenary addresses, for example, for the American Society of Hospital Architects. And a lot of the improvement in architects in architecture in children's hospitals at all kinds of different institutions mm -hmm. um, is due to her influence because she's trying to say that there are healing, healing spaces and and that really matters, and people are studying that. So uh, I won't go into it because it's a long story, but but it's a beautiful book, Healing, Spa Healing Spaces, uh, Harvard University Press. And this is a big rage now, in, both in psychiatry and, and for those of you who are in, in, in the Cleveland area, go out to Hopewell, www.hopewell.cc in Mesopotamia, which was created by one of the great philanthropists of, um, of Cleveland uh, for people with schizophrenia and bipolar. It's 350 acres of beautiful Amish farmland that uh, she built uh, ha uh, homes on. And you have people there who, who are uh, experiencing the beauty of nature. They do arts and crafts. They do small focus groups on positive psychological uh, behaviors like kindness, forgiveness, gratitude, et cetera. It's been very effective. They do get medication. Someone from the clinic is out there, you know, providing medications. But the, but the extent of the medication is probably about one quarter what they would normally be given because somehow the environment itself is so 
um, is so supportive. Well, that's yeah. Clara Rankin. Clara Rankin. Clara Rankin. Yeah, who supports the, the who is, I'm gonna... Rankin family who supports the the uh, Cleveland Orchestra. But don't, she's she's about 107 now, and oh. I, but she's still getting around. She's still getting around. Amazing. And hope, longevity. Hope all. She's a Christian scientist. Get get that. You know, oh well, there's that's a whole and other. <laughs> that's a whole other discussion around longevity and health, right? Well, I know that a lot of the hospitals now are trying to create environments where, um, you know, every patient has a view of outside because we know that having a view outside supports that that healing process, right? And as you're talking about too, I mean the the connection of stress and and as you talked about the the chronic little stressors on a daily basis, it doesn't have to be a big stressor. It, it can be that chronic little stressors each day, creating and, and right. um, sort of contributing to that vascular disease, as well as, as dementia. I, I remember having a, a patient that had a language disorder that was um, you know, expressive aphasia, but she had absolutely no um, no evidence of a stroke on her CT. There was no nothing that would connect it to this, this debilitating language disorder, except the fact that she had taken care of an abusive husband for many, many years who developed Alzheimer's. And um, you know their summation, which you don't really know, was that her interaction with that abusive husband for so many years manifested itself in this expressive aphasia. And she was a, such a beautiful woman. I mean, she made some some nice progress in written language, but but it's amazing to me. That was the first time, and this is many years ago, that I, I really knew of the connection between that intense stress and what that physiologically could do to your body. Yeah, so the thing to be said about that is, you know, I mean, stress is not determinative, uh, and there are many caregivers who <clears throat> don't feel burdened, but actually find great meaning in uh, and elevation in what they're doing. So, um, you know, hence my interest in changing the language from dead, gone, husk, shell to deeply forgetful, defining hope as being open to surprises and encouraging caregivers to notice those um, moments when somebody's identity comes into focus. Yeah. Um, and that's the beauty of music and memory is it's not so much that the individual comes back into themselves for a bit, but it's that the caregivers realize that what they're doing is meaningful because grandma's still there. Right, right. Um, but stress is a factor. And so, you know, I was at a recent, I was at Berkeley at a Alzheimer's conference. And again, you know, stress was by leading experts considered to be one of six pathways that contributes to hippocampal atrophy or shrinking of the hippocampus, which is important for the laying down of, of memories. So I do think that's that's there. As far as you know, uh, having a, a view of the outside. So the initial experiment um, that your comments refer to uh, occurred in, in Paoli, Pennsylvania, which is out on the mm -hmm. west end of the main line. <clears throat> you know, past Bryn Mawr and all those kinds of places. And there's a hospital out there. And what they did was they took matched patients, you know, gender, disease, age, as much as possible and so forth. 
<clears throat> and, uh, and condition, you know, uh, illness. And they would then um, uh, have them uh, recover. This didn't have to be done simultaneously, but one, one patient would recover in a room <clears throat> with a beautiful view of a spate of trees. And um, the other patient, the control patient would, would wake up and they did actually have windows in Paoli. They had windows, <laughs> but they had brick walls. You know, it's like in a, in a, in a ah. skyscraper, you know, in, in Cleveland, you know, you've got a nice window, but then like two feet away from it is the, is the, is the cement block. Of the right, you need building. something to look at besides the cement wall. Yeah, you need, yeah. So, so the ones who just had the cement wall didn't do so well. The ones, the ones who had an open view of nature, um, actually, um, they healed up a little faster. They were um, emotionally more resilient, and um, and and they did better on a lot of psychological tests. So that has become uh, a kind of a beginning point for this whole field of architecture design and uh, in hospitals and clinical settings the the, the um, thing to be said about this there are many things to be said about it um, is that for the most part our hospitals are designed to make our technology comfortable not patients yeah yeah definitely well if you think about like if you were to sort of encapsulate um, what you might say for caregivers of someone who um, has a family member who is deeply forgetful or, um, you know, on any, any stage of that spectrum or even with an autistic child, um, what are some of the core things that you think are, are healing and important to have um, in that environment with that person? What are some, some things to, to think about and and to cultivate in that person's um, interaction with them? Well, um, the most important thing, and you actually said it yourself uh, initially, which I was impressed by, um, <clears throat> always communicate to them as if expecting an answer. Yeah. Um, don't neglect that. Um, <clears throat> Joe Foley, the great neurologist of Cleveland history by far, although there were some others, Bob Darrow, don't get me wrong. Yeah. But um, <clears throat> Joe Foley was the mentor to Joe Morgan, who became the dean of Harvard Medical School. Okay. And about, oh gosh, about, I have to think about this, about 17 years ago, Joe Morgan retired and there was a big retirement shindig at Harvard Medical School for him. <clears throat> and since um, Joe had been, Joe Foley had been Joe Morgan's mentor in his residency, which he did at university hospitals, um, Joe Morgan invited Joe Foley to go, but Joe had he lived, uh, he, he had macular degeneration. He lived in Cleveland Heights. Um, and uh, so uh, he invited me to be his liaison. So we got on co a continental flight from Hopkins. <laughs> they had continental then. And, um, you know, Joe with his big thick green glasses on and his 
came for the blind, although he wasn't quite blind. <clears throat> um, we went to Harvard and, and uh, there were about four or 500 people there. The first thing that happened, Joe Morgan, who everybody adores, you know, he stands up and he says, Joe Foley, stand up. And Joe's like pretty senior. I mean, Joe died, you know, seven or eight years ago. Oh boy. Um, and, and so Joe stood up and, and, and he was, you know, he, he flung up his cane and, and, and Joe Morgan said, you know, the one thing I'll remember from you forever is the first patient that we visited together. You told us to ask that patient questions as if to expect an answer. Mm -hmm. This was a patient that actually had a stroke. You knocked on the door, looked in and tried to see if she was covered. Uh, you had the nurse cover her. And then we walked in and you sat down at the same level. You made contact and you asked her, Mrs. Jacobson, is there anything that we can do to make your stay here at university hospitals? just a little easier. Yeah. Now, as far as everybody was concerned, she'd had a massive stroke and she was completely out, out to lunch. And she shockingly said, well, I could really use an iced tea with lemon. <laughs> and Joe Foley, who'd been the president of the American Neurological Society, the American Neurological Association, the only one who'd been president of both ever, right? He goes out into the hallway and he procures an iced tea with lemon and she brings it to her and he brings it to her. And then, you know, he touches her shoulder and Joe Morgan described every minute detail of that interaction, tone of voice, the pace of it, every little detail. Wow. And he said, you know, you were the best diagnostician I ever met. But, you know, Joe didn't write a lot, but Joe Foley, but he, but he was a great diagnostician. And he wrote some things. What he wrote was great. But, um, and I, we actually wrote a few articles together. And I devoted the new book with Hopkins, uh, Dignity for Deeply Forgetful People, to Joe Foley and have, have his okay. picture in the front matter. And if any of your listeners ever go <clears throat> to Arabica, <clears throat> you know, by, uh, uh, okay. yeah, yeah, you know, in the university circle there, sort of not too far from. Severance Hall and, and Glidden House, down behind Glidden House. Yeah, yeah. There is a Joe Foley room and Joe Foley's picture is uh, on, a, uh, on a bronze plaque there. And, and Joe, Joe was the best. Well, and I need that, to go there then. <laughs> when that book comes out, I'm gonna have a book signing in the Joe Foley room. Oh, fantastic. Gary and I will definitely be there. Well, I, I do uh, appreciate that that is, you know, and even as a neurologist, you, you ask a question like that, you go and do something like that. There's a ton of diagnostic information you can get from that, just having a conversation with someone, especially yeah. as a neurologist. But, but I do think that's so critically important to make sure that you um, talk to someone in that way um, and, and expect, even if they can't answer you, you continue the conversation, but you don't. You don't change it in a way that um, is obvious that you're not paying attention or listening because listening happens in many different ways than verbally. You are a speech therapist. Danielle Rippage would have said that too. 
yeah. Danny, Danny was a friend of mine. <clears throat> but I think that, that um, I mean, that's that's perfect. The other thing is you have to be a complete agnostic when it comes to knowing, to knowing what's underlying that condition. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> because so often um, individuals with these sorts of uh, brain difficulties, they're there. Mm-hmm. Um, they're there, um, uh, but they can't express themselves. And um, Joe and I went out to Heather Hill, which is in Chardon, Ohio. It's not called Heather Hill. I don't know. I, don't even, I think it was all oh, became part of the Cleveland Clinic at some point. <clears throat> but <clears throat> yeah, I don't know. But it, you know, it's, it was a great place. There was a guy named Bob Haar who ran it years ago. And we, so Joe and I spent a lot of time out at Heather Hill. And one day we went into the special care unit for people with Alzheimer's and there were maybe 15 or 20 people in that unit. And they all had their own rooms and you could read on the door a little biographical sketch about them. So there was a guy named Dave and he had two kids and he'd been a businessman and we, you know, we read a little bit about him. So then I asked the nurse, would you introduce me to Dave? So she took me out into the, into the, uh, into the larger room and there were people sort of ambulating around and some of them just sitting in chairs and so forth. Uh, some with a thousand miles stare and some not. And she introduced me to Dave. And so Dave and I went over to a, to a table and Joe was with us, of course. And I said, Dave, um, how are your sons, uh, Jimmy and, 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 uh, and, and John? Because I read the sketch. And he couldn't respond at all, couldn't respond at least. But he had a twig in his hand. It was a it was a white twig um, which had been painted and he handed it to me and put it in my in the palms of my hands with a huge smile and if joy was electric the place would have been on fire so i took it and i thanked him and and then i gave it back to him and patted him on the shoulder and Later on, I asked the nurse, so what's the story with Dave and this twig? And she said, well, he grew up in the northwest corner of Ohio, and his dad had a farm. And his dad gave him a chore every morning, which was to bring kindling into the fireplace when he was a kid. Mm. And so he'd gone back to that time in his life that he most associated with that sort of attachment with his father, whom he loved and who he was loved by. And that's where he was living. And that was a symbolic object. So remember, people with, with... with these brain injuries often relate very well to symbolic objects. Uh, and, 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 and that's why even pastoral care can be very helpful. You'll have people still doing the rosary, for example, you know? Right, right. Um, uh, so uh, those, those symbolic object relations, as it's a form of the cold, are important. And that suggests that, you know, a person, Dave really kind of still knew who he was and so you have to notice, that's the second thing, you know, communicate, but also notice. Notice the hints, notice the winks that you will receive if you look carefully and if you observe carefully. Yeah. You have to be, to quote Larry Dossie, a noticer. Mm-hmm. And if you are a noticer, you can pick up a lot of things and it can be inspiring because then you realize that what you're doing is not a waste of time. Um, it's not like this person is absent, you know, 
but they're in a little different state of being and yet they're still there and who knows you know if you're if you're theological maybe they've got one they've gone down to the 30th street station in philadelphia and they've already got one one foot on that great train for glory and they're just ahead of the game who knows <laughs> they, they you know. are there though i think that's the point is that that they are there for sure you know i i just want to thank you for for bringing this the attention to so much of what we've talked about today compassion empathy um, all of that in terms of the healthcare, as well as training physicians, that's like honorable work, right? You're, you're changing the landscape of, of how physicians are relating to people and relating to the, the patients that they potentially will have, um, or, or just the, the clients that they have, if they're not ill, right? Like the compassion and, and listening skills and, and empathy is important to people who who aren't even experiencing something that is an illness, but maybe just you know coming in for a regular checkup, right? Nice. So I wanna I wanna thank you so much for being part of this. This has really been a, an amazing conversation, nice. and and you know I know this is a, a big chunk of your time, so I do appreciate you being here. A pleasure, and I wish you well, Karen, and uh, congratulations on your podcast. Thank you, Stephen. I think it will go well. I so think much gratitude for Thank Stephen you. Post uh, participating with me on this conversation on the Full Capacity Living podcast. As I listened back to this episode, I was truly amazed at the volume of work that Stephen has contributed to the world of human connectedness. So much so that he even has a foreword on his website from the Dalai Lama for his book, God and Love on Route 80. And Deepak Chopra. It's a great read, and if you're looking for something to reawaken a connection to your soul, this is the book. What a beautiful human. And as always, there is so much in the show notes from this conversation, so head there to find links to everyone mentioned, books, articles, and all of the institutes doing this pivotal work in our world. Thank you for being here, and I truly hope these conversations help each and everyone who hears them live their best lives. Thanks.